And baseball 1911 continues here. Uh, let's see where we're. Oh, this is just. I'm injecting this that baseball players, I mean, I understand that they were sort of owned even when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, but that this, like, that Walter Johnson, because he signed with a baseball team, he either has to sign or they just own him in perpetuity, it would seem. Uh, yeah. Way to go. Uh, I guess you can get away with it. Anyways, We're at the Evening Star, Monday, April 10th, 1911. And as you may imagine, the big headline on the sports page, situation in Johnson case has not changed. Team is in good shape. Walter Johnson has not communicated with club. Intentions of big pitcher are not known to McAleer players work out at Georgetown Field. Reported by the correspondent, that J. Ed Grillo. Reports from Coffee Town, the home of Walter Johnson, have created the impression that the breach between the big pitcher and the club is not near as wide as was generally supposed. If Johnson was correctly quoted, it would seem that he is only waiting to hear from the club officials to pack up and come here and sign up. To date, However, neither President Noyes nor Manager McAleer has heard from Johnson, nor have they communicated with him. The club stands now where it did at the outset. It is willing to pay Johnson 6500 for the coming season or sign him to a three-year contract at a slight increase over the yearly figure, say 21000 However, there has been no negotiating since Johnson left Atlanta, though the club officials believe they will hear from Johnson ere long. When Johnson gets ready to accept our terms, he will be welcomed, said McAleer. The rules of baseball compel us to suspend him if he fails to report on opening day, and we will take this course, which will put his case into the hands of the commission. We have been fair with Walter, and he must eventually see the error of his way. We want Johnson to be sure. He is a great pitcher, but he must be as fair as we have been before we can possibly get together. It is unfortunate to have this matter come up just when our chances look better than ever, but there is a limit to all things, and Walter has stepped over the line. I've heard nothing from him since he left Atlanta. I hope he will realize the mistake he is making before it is too late. Reports from Coffeeville lead us to believe that Walter is not as far from our reach as he was, but until we hear from him, we will have nothing further to say. Jim McAleer makes the prediction that Bob Groom will be one of the winning pitchers of the American League this year. According to McAleer, Groom is much stronger this spring than he has ever been before and should pitch 50% better ball. All I ask for Groom is a fair chance, said McAleer. I hope that if he should get a wobble or two, the crowd will not get after him. Bob wants to pitch here. He's 
particularly anxious to make good. There is not a pitcher in this league who has more natural ability than Groom. I don't care who the pitcher is. He has no more stuff than Bob, and I believe that he is going to use it to advantage this season. Every fan who is interested in the welfare of the natural Nationals should make up his mind to give Groom a fair chance. Criticism will not help him. Let him get a good start here and the crowds will be cheering for him because I know him to be a great pitcher. It is by no means decided that Warren Miller will be shifted to some minor league club. There has been such a remarkable change in the youngster's work during the past 10 days that McAleer believes he has the making of a good ball player. He can hit with any of them, and now that he is displaying more interest in his work and the spirit which makes ball players, he stands an excellent chance of breaking into the Nationals lineup at the first opportunity. Unless the Nationals receive a setback during the next few days, they will start the season in much better condition than they have ever enjoyed before on opening day. Every man is down to playing condition, and while there is not a pitcher on the staff who is not ready to go on the route, every man is down to playing condition, while there is not a pitcher on the staff who is not ready to go the route. Hughes, of course, will be held back until the hot weather sets in, but every one of the others is ready to take his turn on the slab. Today and tomorrow, the players will work out at Georgetown Field, permission having been secured by manager McAleer yesterday. Not only is the infield at National Park not quite ready to be worked on, but with the finishing touches being put on the stand, it is feared that the work would be retarded by having the players on the field, for it is questionable if the workmen could withstand the temptation to take an occasional peep at the men in uniform. Superintendent O'Day will have the field in good condition by Wednesday. It is his intention to put a steamroller on the field Tuesday. The clearing of the field of debris and materials used in the construction of the stands is now underway and will be completed by this evening. The putting in of the temporary seats in the grandstand started this morning. Kid Elberfield will not be allowed to take workouts with the players today and tomorrow. The kid has been going at such a hard clip that he is five or six pounds underweight, and McAleer has ordered him to remain at home until Wednesday at noon when he can report at the park for the opening game. There is one player on the Nationals list for whom every other player on the team is always willing to put in a boost. He is John Henry, the Amherst youngster who is assigned to play first base. He, in the midst of his teammates, Henry is the most improved ball player that has ever stepped on a spike. He has so, shown such excellent form at first and at the bat that the prediction is freely made that he will class with Hal Chase in another year. Manager McAleer shares this opinion. He is very enthusiastic about Henry. Unless there is a wonderful change in Henry in the championship season compared to his work in the South, he will be one of our most valuable men this season, said McAleer. But I can't see how there can be any deterioration in his work. He has been tried and not found wanting. He's been up against mighty good pitching, and he has hit well enough to warrant the prediction that he will continue to hit in the regular season. 
I never saw a ball player come as rapidly as this Henry. Sometimes I can't realize that it is to my good fortune to have picked up so promising a man. Bill Cunningham, weighing 174 pounds, which is just two pounds more than he weighed last fall, looks ready to go the route now. But it has taken a lot of hard work for him to get down to where he belongs. The rubber shirt took off 14 pounds, and Cunny looks trim and fast now. Was the hardest work I ever did in my life, said he, and I shall see to it that I will never have to go through such a siege of training again. The most discouraging feature of it was that for ten days, though I worked hard, I could not take off a pound, and it did seem as if I would never come around. But after I got into that rubber shirt, it just poured off me, and while I am not as strong yet as I should be, I will be ready to deliver the goods in a few more days. But don't you know that I believe I could smile if someone would accidentally walk away with that rubber shirt? Whenever I look at it, it brings tears to my eyes. Walter Johnson, according to Jim Mackler, was in better form this spring than ever before, and if he reports, his manager predicts a wonderful season for him. McAleer can't understand Johnson at all. He thinks that the youngster has been poorly advised and is taking a long chance of putting himself out of baseball by his action in refusing to sign at the salary offered. McAleer, however, insists the club will stand pat on the proposition made Johnson regardless of what the outcome may be. The fact that the salary offered Johnson is the largest any pitcher in the American League will secure is a compliment to his ability and shows that the club appreciates his services. McAleer believes that Johnson will come to his senses within a few days and report, though he has been notified that unless he comes into the fold by Wednesday, he will be suspended. Once suspended, the case will be out of the hands of the local club, and Johnson will then have to deal with the National Commission. He is not apt to be upheld by the Supreme Court of Baseball in his stand for a greater salary, and may have a severe fine inflicted for his failure to get into line on the opening day of the season. The game Wednesday will be called promptly at 3.30. President Taft will be on hand for the first game. He already having notified President Noyes that he will be present, and it is not unlikely that Vice President Sherman will also be there. President Van B. Johnson of the American League is expected to arrive in the city early Wednesday morning. The sale of the box seats, of which there will be 768 available for the opening game, will go on at 9 o'clock Tuesday morning at Spaldings and White's. While it is certain that Lelevelt and Gessler will start the season in left and right field, respectively, how long they will hold down these positions depends entirely on their showing. It is, of course, not the intention to take them out on their showing of one or two games, but they will be given ample time to get into their stride when, if they fail, either Conway or Miller or both of the youngsters will be given a chance. McAleer believes, however, that both Lelevelt and Gessler will make good. Both are in excellent condition, and were just beginning to show up well with the bat when the team left Atlanta. 
Conway and Miller are both good hitters, and it will be no easy matter to keep them out of the game. In order to protect spectators sitting on the left field pavilion, a screen eight feet in length and 20 feet high will be erected across the upper end of this stand, which will also prevent many balls from going into the seats. Left field will be short along the foul line under existing conditions at the local grounds because it will be impossible to switch the diamond where it belongs for a time at least, if at all this season. But this could not prove a disadvantage to the Nationals because they will play 77 games on the home grounds and should master the art of hitting into left field. Let's see. An article, uh, Tigers' first base may not be decided on for a year. Jennings is also figuring on using Kirk on initial sack. Lathers becomes contender for Tom Jones's position. Special dispatch to the star from Louisville, Kentucky, April 10th. Detroit will not be stronger at first this season than the Tigers were last year, with Tom Jones playing the bag. This year they will probably have Del Gaynor and probably Chick Lathers, although the case of Chick may hang fire for another week or so. In Gaynor, Detroit is... <clears throat> In Detroit, rather... And Gaynor in Detroit is playing in futures, while in the veteran Tom Jones, the Tigers had a certainty. As a fielder, Jones was the superior of Gaynor, but as a hitter and base runner, Gaynor should prove the superior of Jones, evening up matters and making the present incumbent of the office an equal, but by no means superior, all things considered, of the man he replaces. Gaynor needs development. Jennings knew that Tom Jones was at his best last year. This season, he could be no better than last and hardly as good, while if he could get a young player like Gaynor to be as good as Jones was last year, chances were that he could be developed into a first-class first-sacker by next year. Gaynor needs development, and he has the material in him. Lathers would have to be taught a great deal. The suggestion of using the chicken on the initial sack has been made to Jennings on several occasions, and Huey passed up the idea on each occasion. Several days ago, he saw Chick go to first for a few minutes and watched him make a few stops, catches, and throws. The idea of making a first sacker out of the former Michigan University slugger flashed on Jennings' mind and he began giving attention to Lathers. The problem is now a serious one with Jennings. Returning to Gaynor, his long loan fault is showing occasional lapses of judgment, not that as much as becoming rattled. Gaynor is not the type of player that baseball terms bonehead. He allows the voice of the sidelines to lead him into wrong plays. This can be overcome. Gaynor is a good hitter, and he is fast on the bases. He is a fairly good fielder, but the man whom he replaces was regarded as one of the best fielding first basemen in the league. 
Gaynor may never be the batsman that Claude Rossman was, but Gaynor will stand for coaching, and Rossman wouldn't. Had Rossman allowed himself to be taught, he would still be in the major leagues. Claude knew too much for his own good, or rather, Claude thought he knew it. Rossman palmed ball. Had Rossman gone to Bennett Park every morning and practiced throwing, he could have overcome his great fault, but Claude would not do this. He thought he could throw. He even refused to admit that he palmed a ball. Rossman threw a baseball the way a shot putter throws the shot. He held it in his, the palm of his hand and pushed it off. Gaynor is a much better fielder than Rossman and a far superior base runner. Rossman never could run bases. It took a long single to send Rossman from first to second, and it generally took a healthy triple to score him from first. Jennings thinks that he has a good hitter in lathers. He believes the chicken should bat two seventy this year, providing he remains on the Detroit payroll, which is not an absolute certainty. Jay Kirk is another candidate for first base. Jay does not know it, but his appointment to the initial station is one of Jennings' plans. Kirk is a good hitter, and Huey wants to be sure of having someone fall back on in case Gaynor and Lathers both fall to meet fail rather to meet requirements. He intends to get Kirk out of the league for a year, have him play first, and recall him next season in case he is needed. The first base proposition is not cleared by any means, and it probably won't be for a year. And in the baseball briefs, Mike Mitchell has been appointed captain of the Cincinnati team, a deserved honor. Joe Wood never looked better than this spring and is expected to be the Red Sox star pitcher in the coming race. Chase writes right-handed, Plays billiards left-handed, bats right-handed, throws left-handed, and can butter his bread with either hand. Handy knowledge. Uh, Connie Max says Henry, Harry Davis is good for two or three years more, and so Connie is thinking of disposing of Hauser, his other first baseman. Chase, Moriarty, and Egan have been hurt this spring on the Cincinnati Diamond, Chase sprung a Charlie horse, and Moriarty and Egan each sprained an ankle. Cincinnati critics, after seeing Ty Cobb play the other day, agreed unanimously that the reports from the South that Ty had slowed up were the stuff his dreams are made of. He is still the only Ty. New York was ever chesty. They expect to land two pennants, the Giants getting the Nationals and the Highlanders the Americans. Wait. And J. Ed Grillo's uh, pertinent comments on happenings in sportdom. Uh, he often, more often than not, talks about boxing, but uh, he's talking about baseball. Here, uh, St. Louis critics never failed to take a slap at Jim McAleer, even though it is necessary to misrepresent the facts of a case to do so. Just now, they are busy belittling McAleer for his stand in the Johnson case, though they fall, fail absolutely to adhere to the facts in doing so. Here is what the Post-Dispatch has to say. 
James McAleer and his associates on the Washington Club management should send out a scout on a still hunt for a little common sense. For a difference of $1,000 in salary, they threatened to let Walter Johnson retire from baseball. If McAleer would add up the entire payroll of his club and add $500 to it, he would approximate a sum that might adequately represent Johnson's value to the club. Johnson is the club. James will find it out if he lets that wonderful pitcher quit. But will McAleer let Johnson go? Ha! Will he cut his throat? He will not. He has too much to say yet. Everyone, of course, knows that it is not a question of $1,000 that has caused the breach between the club and its star pitcher. Johnson does not care what salary he gets this year, providing he is assured $27,000 for the next three seasons, and it is this demand that the club refuses to accede to. The salary offered Johnson is beyond question the equal of that of any six players drawing salary from Colonel Hedges, or in Wallace, perhaps. Furthermore, it is a good bet that the salary list of the Washington club last season or this season is a 100% higher than that of the St. Louis club. Hedges' offer to buy or trade for Johnson is on the methods employed by this magnet. Every one of the other clubs naturally feels in sympathy with this local club in its stand against Johnson, for the chickens are apt to come home to roost at any time. But Hedges is not of that spirit. He believed that he could secure Johnson as if he would pay something that the Washington club refused to pay. Just now, both sides of the famous deal made last winter between the Cincinnati and Philadelphia clubs figure they have the better of it, and if that is proved by the end of the coming season, it will speak well indeed for the wisdom of the managers of the two clubs. Doolin is tickled to death with Labert, Paskert, Rowan, and Boone, while Cincinnati feels it has strengthened its team with the acquisition of McQuillan, Bates, Morin, and Grant. Of the lot, McQuillan promises the most. This pitcher, whose arm was supposed to be gone, came to life Sunday and better fettled now than he has been in several years, and when that is said, it means that he will come pretty near to leading the pitchers in victories this year. The one club in the American League race which is hardest to guess is Boston. That is because of the changes that have been made in the lineup. Last year, when the team took the field in the spring, looked to be the strongest individually in the circuit, and up to July looked to have a good chance for the flag. But just about that time, John I. Taylor, the owner of the club who is always doing the unexpected, broke up a winning combination by trading McConnell and Lord to Chicago for Smith and Pertell, and came the retirement of Jake Stahl. Remains to be seen if this club has been fortunate enough to replace these players. Of course, Chicago was strengthened by these challenges, but no one believes that. Boston has as strong a team as last year, last spring, though this still remains to be proved. It seems to be the general opinion around the circuit that McAleer's team will make a better showing this year than it did last, and these opinions are based on the fact that the Nationals had a stronger lineup at the finish of last season than in the spring. 
Cunningham, Henry, and Ainsmith have undoubtedly added strength for every one of them has improved since last seen here. The pitching staff, if Johnson joins it, will be stronger beyond a doubt. Surely it can not be that the Nationals will finish lower, for the St. Louis Browns look weaker than ever. Having lost seven straight games to the St. Louis Cardinals makes Wallace's team look to have a cinch on finishing last in the race again this year. Even though John Henry should not come up to the many things that have been predicted for his playing, or John Summerlot should be shifted to first base, the local club seems assured of having that position better taken care of than it has been for several years. Neither Jerry Freeman nor Bob Unglaub is in the same class with either of the youngsters mentioned. It is going to be good for sore eyes to see so active and agile a youngster as Henry around first base, a position which is filled satisfactorily on but few teams in this league and never has been on a Washington team. Rube Waddell. We, we, let's see, we've got a couple of little squibs here in the bottom corner. Rube Waddell pitched his first full game of the season for Minneapolis, the American Association champions at Memphis, Tennessee, and according to general opinion, he showed much of his old-time form, striking out three men in the eighth inning with the bases full and winning his game in the tenth inning six to three. Russell Ford will have to work against better pitchers this season. Last year, none of the managers knew how good he was until he won a string of games. This year, whenever Ford is picked to pitch for the Yankees, the opposing manager is going to pick one of his best men. Sox pitching staff will be stronger than ever. Manager Duffy has groomed his young pitchers into wonderful shape. Veterans will not have to do all work. Hugh Duffy, the manager of the White Sox, has an idea that the South Side aggregation will have even a better pitching staff than in the years gone by, which certainly would be some pitching staff, for the South Side gang has always been celebrated for the strength of the fellows who did the twirling. For years and years, in fact, ever since the old Roman broke into baseball in Chicago, the White Sox have been noted for the effectiveness of the twirlers. Oh, I, I, I love that. The twirlers. Does anybody use that term anymore? The language in and of itself of some of these articles is, to me, there's a deliciousness involved here. Um, the Sox never hit much, but any time that they got a few runs, they won the ball game. The reason was that their pitchers were always so effective that a few runs were enough to win because the other fellows couldn't even get a few. Now comes Duffy with the statement that his pitchers are even stronger than usual. Lange, Baker, and Olmstead, good. Duffy bases his claim upon the showing made by three men on his staff. This does not include Walsh, the grandest of them all. Duffy claims that Lange, the right-hander with the speed and spitball, Baker, the southpaw recruit, and Olmstead, the right-hander with the speed and curves, are all stars of the slab, and that 
when they face the batters of the American League, they will demonstrate that runs are hard to secure off them. Uh, the, the, the spitball, uh, I, I, I guess that was still a legitimate pitch in this. I, I was not aware of that up to this very minute, but that's good to know that the spitball was possibly too effective a pitch and uh, especially in the modern era I think the health considerations would also be a problem. Uh, back to the article. Comparisons are always odious and therefore everybody likes to make them. This one will be between the twirling staff of the socks of this year and the one of last. A man does not have to be a prophet to predict that the pitching staff of the socks this year will be stronger than the one of last. Nor does a man have to be a prophet to predict that the Sox will be well up in the race and a much better ball club than last year if the infielders and outfielders will show the same improvement that has already been demonstrated by the slabmen. Only one man considered a good pitcher who was with the club last year is missing this year. Frank Smith is that man. There is no use in saying that Smith is not a good pitcher when he wants to be. He has all the stuff that a good pitcher requires. But Smith was never a winner and for the simple reason that he could not forget that such a man as Ed Walsh was on the ball club. Smith is a good pitcher, but he isn't a Walsh. If he could have driven that fact through his head, he would have been a far more effective pitcher. Creo to replace Smith. Duffy now has three men to replace Smith, and these three will probably make such a showing that the South Side fans will forget that they ever had a piano mover on the twirling staff. Take Frank Lange, for instance. This young fellow is a whale of a pitcher. He is a young man, and that is an asset instead of a liability. He has as good a spitball as Smith ever possessed. That places them on even terms. For what Lange has in addition to his spitball makes him just that much ahead of Smith. The idea being that when you robbed Smith of his spitter, you robbed him of all his possessions as a pitcher. Lange has a good curveball. Duffy also has taught him a change of pace. And these are two possessions that Smith never had. Then Lange has the better of Smith in that he has been taught to hold base runners to their bags. Baker will be a screen. Baker the South was likely to be the big screen on the South side this year. Big screen. Oh, I, th this is fun. He is a man who is particular, peculiar rather, for a left-hander, for he possesses the very thing that so many southpaws lack, and that is control. Baker is a big, rangy fellow who looks and acts very much like Jack Felflester of the clubs. In fact, the resemblance between the two is remarkable. Baker looks like Flester, except that he is heavier. His delivery is almost a duplicate of the Cubs' southpaw. Baker appears to be the find of the year for the Sox in the pitching line. He has tremendous speed and also possesses that wide, 
breaking, sweeping curveball that seems the natural possession of every left-hander. He can put the ball anywhere he likes. He is a big, husky chap who should be able to work just as often as manager Duffy wants him to. In a word, Baker looks the goods. How is that a word? Oh, man, I'm so funny. Olmstead is too good a loser. Olmstead is not exactly a recruit, yet you could not call him a veteran. He pitched for the Sox last year, but a single season is not enough to stamp a man an old fellow, and Omi should be classed with the youngsters of the twirling staff. This fellow possesses just one fault. He doesn't like to win well enough, or better still, it doesn't hurt him enough to lose. He is too happy, too philosophical. He doesn't get mad enough when he is trimmed. He is too apt to say, well, I'll win the next time out. It's fine to be a good fellow, but the great ball player is the fellow who gets angry enough to commit murder when he loses a ball game. Duffy develops his youngsters. Lange, Baker, and Olmstead will undoubtedly cut much ice in the showing of the socks this year. Manager Duffy realizes as much and has been putting them through some special stunts on the training trip. He has paid special attention to the fielding work of these men. He has done his best to teach them to hold men to their bases and to give them the, give the catchers a chance of throwing them out when they attempt to steal. He has spent days in teaching the men to field their position, and other days in teaching them a change of pace. The fans who have seen Lange, Olmstead, and Scott pitch know that none of these possessed this latter, this change of pace. Duffy has an idea that a man is not a good pitcher when he is compelled to rely on any one ball. Lange's spitter is all well and good, but if he can mix that up with a fastball and then a slow one, he is equipped to pitch to almost any batter in the American League. Duffy has paid his usual attention to these things. Baker, best of recruits. Baker seems to be the best of the recruits, probably his closest rival is Farthing, also a southpaw. Farthing came from the Lincoln Club of the Western League. He has a corking curveball, but he must place too much dependence upon it. If he had a fastball, he would be as well equipped, but he lacks this fast one, and his lack of speed is the thing which will return him to the minors if Duffy decides that he must go. Raj, a Chicago pitcher with the squad, has only a slight chance. He's a fairly good pitcher, but then the Sox have so many stars that a man must be something more than merely a good pitcher to stick. Brucker is another who might have stuck if the team was not so well supplied. This fellow is both a pitcher and an outfielder, is a hard hitter and a fast man on the bases, but is handicapped by the fact that Duffy already possesses a bunch of real stars, and there is no place for a man of ordinary ability. Old fellows are very fit. Of the old fellows, not one has gone back. It looks very much as if White, Baker, and Young would be the southpaws of the staff, and that Duffy would depend upon Ed Walsh, Olmstead, Scott, and Lange when he thinks it is the proper thing to send a right-hander against the enemy.
These men are likely to do the pitching for the Sox, and if they live up to the reputation they have displayed so far on the training trip, then the slab of the White Sox will be one of the horrors of the American League. That is, for the enemy. And moving right along here. Oh, yes, there's still more. Yeah, these shows, they're getting elaborate, aren't they? But this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Joe Sugden breaks vow of 17 years to umpire game. Tiger coach dropped indicator two jumps ahead of roaring Cincinnati crowd in 1894. Other arbiter tales. This out of Monroe, Louisiana, April 10th. Joe Sujden, Tiger coach, umpired an exhibition game here the other day. It was the first one in which Joe officiated since 1894. And at that time, Joe swore he wouldn't do it again. Joe was with Pittsburgh at the time, and they were playing in Cincinnati. Timothy Hurst had been assigned to the Arbiter job, but Timothy did not show up, so Cincinnati and Pittsburgh decided to choose a man from each team and let them officiate. Buck Ewing was then managing Cincinnati, and Buck picked Sujden. Pittsburgh decided that Frank Dwyer should be the man. The first game went along nicely, Cincinnati winning, no one kicking on Sujden's part of the officiating. Hurst did not arrive next day, and the same players were selected to officiate. The game was close, with Pittsburgh a run to the good. Cincinnati was at bat. Taylor reached first and was leading far off. The hit and run had been signaled for. Pittsburgh's pitcher changed signals, told the pitcher that he would catch out, and signaled Harry Davis on first of the change. The ball was pitched out, and a quick throw retired Taylor. It was a close play at that, and Cincinnati roared. They made a beeline for Sujden. He talked back to them and left the field under a million threats, vowing never to umpire again. Tim hurls glass. The next day, Hurst came. Timothy didn't stay long, however. Someone hurled beer glasses at him, and Tim grabbed a glass and hurled it in the bleachers, Cutting one man badly, a squad of policemen took Timothy off the field. After Hurst was paraded to the lockup, Ewing stepped to the home plate and bawled out, Is Mr. Bickman in the audience? Mr. Bickman was, and Mr. Bickman umpired. It was a clear day in July. The sun was shining, and the end of the eighth found the score tied. In the first half of the ninth, Pittsburgh made five runs as the half ended. Mr. Bickman stepped to the home plate and yelled, Game called on account of darkness. And the sun was still shining. Tom Lynch bluffed. Old Patsy Thibault and his crowd of roughnecks in Cleveland had them all beaten at browbeating the umpires. Tom Lynch could not be bluffed according to popular opinions, but one day when Patsy walked over to Mr. Lynch and said, grab your tools and run, Mr. Lynch walked off the field and resigned. DeBoe and his brother, Big Ed McKean, Cupid Childs, Jimmy McAleer, Burkett, O'Connor, and a few others who liked to rough it with the best of them, Patsy was probably the gamest player of all time. The first job of that 
Cleveland outfit was to get to the umpire, bulldoze him, and draw the long end of the decisions. Whenever the umpire failed to do his duty in favor of Cleveland, Tabot got him out of the way, and walking in front of the stands would ask, Is Mr. McGinnity in the audience? McGinnity, always there. And somehow or other, Mr. McGinnity always happened to be there. He was appointed umpire, and he knew his duty well. Whenever the other team threatened to forge ahead, Tabot would walk over to McGinnity and yell, Get down to work, Mac, get down to work, you're loafing. And thereupon, whatever chance, the other club had fled. Baltimore and Cleveland could always mix it. One time Cleveland was playing in Baltimore and local friends presented Cupid Childs with a mammoth floral horseshoe. About the eighth inning, Baltimore took the lead into Bow in a rage, grabbed his hat, ran over to the horseshoe and tore it up. Childs, meek, walked up to Tabot, but all he could say was, Now, Patsy, that ain't no nice way for you to do. Shut up, said Patsy. Shut up or you'll join the horseshoe. Bobby Wallace joined Cleveland, and for two weeks Bobby didn't dare open his mouth. He slipped in and out of the clubhouse when no one was looking. It was a grand crowd. Yeah, that was kind of weird and, <clears throat> I guess, old-school, old-time baseball trivia or something there. Yeah, the old-school umpires. I mean, the whole game now. I'm this Every day, another revelation. Veterans doomed. Army of recruits promises to crowd old-timers to bench. Cub twirlers are aging. Youngsters in line to take jobs on regular staff in race for pennant. Chicago, April 10th. Breakers loom ahead for the major league vets. Slowly but surely, old-timers hailed a few seasons ago among the truly greats are slipping. And popular demand for new faces coupled with the degeneration of those same old idols is working tremendous changes to both circuits. The time-honored adage, it isn't what you were, it's what you are today, is working overtime and the season of gloom in full blast. There won't be any glaring shakeup in the Cub Troop if Husk Chance makes good his recent statement. The P.I. seems content to stand pat and go along with his battle-scarred warriors who clung to him through thick and thin and assisted in giving Chicago four National League pennants in five thrilling seasons. If young talent is to be injected into the betitled ranks, the process will be applied locally to the hurling staff. Infield to stand pat. To take it from chance, the infield, one of the greatest ever assembled under one roof, will endure another season. All slams at the faithful Steinfeld to the contrary. The outfield will come back, and it looks like Sheckard, Schult, and Hoffman for the next one best bet. Johnny Kling is getting up in years, so is Tom Needham, but Jimmy Archer is still a sprightly youth, and the PL is banking on no changes in the wind pad department. At present, 16 flingers are lined up to depart on the spring trip when the team embarks for West Baden. Of the lot, 
five must be enlisted among the grown-ups of the slab firmament. Willis, Brown, and Feister are the prize antiques all hovering around the 33-year mark, while King Cole, the elongated marvel of 1910, is merely a stripling, beardless child of 22, according to his own solemn oath. Ruleback, again hardy. Big Ed Ruleback is fast nearing his 30th year on Earth, but chance figures the wild man to enjoy a rip-roaring season of it now that the antitoxin treatments administered last spring have parted company with Ruley's system. As in the case of the Cubs, every other club in the two major leagues is burdened with venerable artists, and the club owners seem loath to dispose of the stars of yesterday. These players are of inestimable, inestimable value to their respected teams in more ways than one. Otherwise, they couldn't stick to their jobs. Endurance is a grand quality in baseball as well as in automobiling and pugilism, but the best of them must someday fall for the count. Down in Pittsburgh, the Bugs are wondering what the future holds for the athletic landmarks to wit Clark, Wagner, Leach, Lever, Philippe, et al. All these hardies have basked in the limelight for more than a decade. Detroit has a bunch of old scouts in Crawford, Donovan, Mullen, and Davy Jones, while the world's champion Mackman have some aged boys in Davis, Bender, Plank, Hartzell, and Murphy. Yeah, these grown-ups must stay on the job to lend the helping hand to newcomers who stand in need of considerable uplift in the finer points of pastiming. Wagner saves Red Sox. Charlie Wagner... Shortstop on the Boston American League team is the keystone to the speedy infield corralled by John I. Taylor a few seasons ago and all but smashed to smithereens when the Hub City Magnet traded McConnell and Lord for Prutell and F. Smith, former White Shins. At St. Louis, Bobby Wallace, one of the brainiest infielders of them all, proved the connecting link, the tie that bound the Browns' inner wall together. This season, Harry Lord should turn the same trick for Comiskey's infield, working hand-in-hand with the new material assembled last season and amplified by the cadets of the coming spring trip. The fans who believe Connie Mack never let a good player get away and do not believe Joe Jackson and Sid Smith Athletic discards will come up to expectations, should remember Jack Knight, who was turned loose by Mack. Knight went to Baltimore and helped win the Eastern League pennant, and then was picked up by the Yankees. He had 3-12 last year and is one of the great infielders of the American League. It is a good bet that Mack would give $10,000 for Knight any day. Jack would be just the first baseman to take the place of Harry Davis, and with Knight on first, Connie would have the greatest young infield in baseball history. McGraw and Harry Lord, ardent admirers of Chase. Giant leader declares Yankee boss will make good. Lord doesn't doubt managerial skill of peerless first baseman. New York 
April 10th, followers of the American League team in New York are wondering just now whether Hal Chase, premier first baseman, will make good in the managerial ranks next season. Yeah, we actually are going to, I think, go back to the New York paper for uh, our next episode and next day, just to mix it up a little. But uh, yeah, we have been, if you've been following from the beginning, uh, we have been uh, hearing a lot of speculation about Hal Chase and his potential as a manager. There is one person in the metropolis at least in whose mind, there is no doubt that the hilltop leader will deliver the goods in every particular. That person is no less an authority than John McGraw himself. One evening last week, the popular manager of the National League crew and several Diamond celebrities, including Jimmy Blair, were tickling the ivories at Muggsy's Billiard Parlors, and between innings there was some baseball talk. The general result was the placing of the stamp of approval on Hal Chase as manager and player. Johnny said he did not think that Chase's playing would be hampered by his attention to managerial duties. Chase wonderful player. I see no reason why Chase should not make good as a manager and still be a great player, said McGraw. Anyone who can think as fast as Chase on the ball field will make good as a leader. They tell me he will get along all right with his teammates. No one doubts his ability as a great player. He showed me in our series that he was there. He made plays that the average ball player would not think of. Any time a player is appointed manager, the general impression is that he will decline in his work on the playing field, but McGraw thinks Chase will be a player who will go along at the same old speed. The subject of Chase is going the rounds, and here's what Harry Lord, the star third sacker of the White Sox, has to say about him. Must learn the ropes. Chase will make an excellent manager as soon as he learns the ropes, says Lord, who is wintering in Portland, Maine. He is a young man who will profit by experience. If he can show the Highlanders how to play the game like himself, he may have a pennant winner. Chase knows more about inside baseball than the average player. He is well liked by the players in all the big clubs and is not a bully. He has an even temper and is not a kicker. That is much in his favor, and with the excellent material he will have to start with, I think you'll see the Yankees right up with the bandwagon all the way. Chase believes in speed, and speed generally wins ball games. And, uh, yep, that's uh, our uh, baseball news for uh, the April 10th, once again, out of... Uh, our Washington, D.C. newspaper. The evening, does the evening star here? Correct. And um, let's see, there's some baseball players, somebody named Quinlan, Murphy, and Hauser. Are, they're playing good ball for local colleges, but uh, I am not going to digress unless I see a very interesting thing <coughs> I hope this continues to be informative and uh, amusing, if nothing else. Uh, 
And with any luck, we will catch you the next time. And until then, um, if you got any comments or anything, the email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. I will be out of the office for much of the beginning of May, just in case uh, you think I disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, I have not. I'm just the preoccupied. I, I'm taking a radio vacation. So, uh, anyways, until the next time we meet, whenever that may be, set the controls for the heart of the fun.